Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Ryan Limbaugh. If you're visiting with us tonight, I just want to, on behalf of our church leaders and our church family as a whole, thank you for being here to celebrate Christ the Lord. I also want to just thank our musicians and those who have decorated our building so nicely that gives us a a reverential spirit as we consider the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would ask you, if you would, bow your head and your heart with me as we ask the Lord to give us illumination tonight. Father, we come before you tonight and ask, just as you've been doing through the scripture reading and the songs, that you might thrill us with the realities of who you are and what you've done, and that you might ignite in our heart a white-hot passion for your Son, the great Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. I grew up mostly in the 80s, and I watched a lot of major sporting events in the 80s, The Olympics, both summer and winter, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, you name it, I probably watched it. And inevitably, in the 80s, if you watched any major sporting events, whether it be one of the golf four majors or whether it be some other sport, the the camera would scan into the crowd and show the spectators and fans And inevitably, as it did, there would be somebody. There would be somebody. Normally, it would be like a man who, because it was the 80s, would have on tube socks up to his knees with stripes around him and maybe like those short coaching shorts and a t-shirt and a mustache and a ball camp with a fishnet in the back. And he would be holding a sign. And that sign would say, John 3.16. Carolyn, you knew it. John 3.16. It didn't matter what sporting event it was, you would see that sign any sporting event that you watch. Because John 3.16 from the 70s to the 80s and to the 90s was like the the Christian mantra. That, it, it, was, it was the verse that everybody went to. And, and this, this evening, what I want is I want us to meditate for about 10 minutes on John 3, 16 and 17 so that at this Christmas time, it will not be a, a verse that we simply memorize because that's what Christians do. It won't be a mantra for us to repeat simply to make us seem spiritual, but that we will see God in, th- in John 3:16 and 17, and it might thrill our hearts and ignite within our hearts a passion for Christ. And so if we could put John 3:16 and 17 up on the screen, I simply want us to do one thing tonight. I want us to ask and answer four questions from these two verses. And so I'll read the verses, and then I'll probably ask for your participation some as we read. Uh, as we ask the four questions. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved 
through Him. The first question that I want us to ask tonight is because as I studied this passage, the subject of this passage was clear. In both sentences, in both verses, who or what is the subject of those verses and sentences? God. God is the subject of both sentences, of both verses. And so the very first question that I asked, that I'm asking you right now is, who is God? Who is God? You want a really theological answer to that question? H. Strong said that God is the infinite and perfect Spirit in whom all things have their source, have their support, and have their end. That's a really good definition. It's also very theological and maybe kind of uh, not, not attainable for us. We could also say that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe and He is existent in three persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But but if you were to ask me who my wife is, I wouldn't give you a definition for my wife. I would describe my wife so that you could understand a little bit more about who she is rather than giving you a definition. And so what I would like for us right now is I would like for us to ask the question, who is God, and answer that question based upon what we know of Him. What do we know about His attributes? What do we know about His actions of who God is? And so, I would like to open it up now and just ask that question, and you could say it in in one word. What do you know about God? He is is good. The Lord is good, the Scripture says. He's powerful. That's exactly right. He is a Savior, Omar. Very good. He's loving. What is it? He is faithful. He he never goes back on His promises. He always fulfills exactly what He says that He will do. He is holy. And by holy, the Scripture means that He is separate. He's other than us. He's different from us. He is distinct and set apart from us. And not only does it mean that He's separate, it means that He is sinless. He is pure. He is stainless. He's never sinned. He's never uttered a a bad word. He has never had a bad thought. He's never done a terrible thing. He is separate. He is sinless. He is supreme. As Mark was saying, He is powerful. He is supreme over all. There is none higher than God. There is none better than God. There is none more powerful than God. God does what He wants, when He wants, to whom He wants, how He wants to do it. What else do we know about God? Yes, He is sovereign. What? He is just. He he is a king. That's right. Yes. Yes. He, He is a loving Father. That's exactly right. God is this big, massive, glorious, high, beautiful, compassionate, merciful being. And I want you to know this. I want you to know this. That you and I are created to live in awe of God. 
When Jamie and I lived out in Los Angeles, we made five trips to Yosemite National Park. We love that place. We love the mountains, the waterfalls, the backcountry. We love the lakes. We love the ice and the snow and the sun. We love everything about Yosemite National Park. And so anytime we had an opportunity to drive five and a half hours up to that park and spend time there, we would do it when we lived there. And as we got closer and closer to the park every year, we would see signs. Yosemite National Park, 100 miles. Yosemite National Park, 72 miles. Yosemite National Park, 61 miles. Yosemite National Park, 25 miles. But could you imagine, could you imagine us seeing the Yosemite National Park 10 mile sign and, and Jamie and I pulling the car over and parking and just staring at that sign? Yosemite National Park, 10 miles. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that, look at the letters. Those are beautiful letters. Look at the number, 10. Such a complete number. You know, could, could you imagine that? You would call us what? Crazy. You would call us crazy. You would say to us, go the extra 10 miles and look at the park itself, wouldn't you? Listen, what we do with God is that we live our lives and we experience the blessings, the relationships, the things, the materials, the physical pleasures of those things. And all of those things are good in and of themselves, but you know what they are? They're signs. They're signs for us to say, where did this come from? Where do I need to take this thing and go all the way to? We are not designed to live in awe of signs. We're designed to live in awe of a God who is sovereign and beautiful and merciful and gracious and omnipotent and omniscient and, and, and glorious in every possible way. And so who is God? God is the infinite and eternal supreme being who does exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He loves us. And we're about to see why. The second question that I want us to ask, if you're looking at the text up on the screen, what did God do? Now, there are two things that He did. The first is in the positive. The second is in the negative. And it's not, in that, it's not found in that little phrase that comes right after God. That is an ex explanatory phrase that we're going to look at in just a minute. What did God do according to verse 16 and 17? He gave. He gave. God is a giving God. This word give, it, it, it indicates this idea of being selfless. It indicates this idea of giving up something that belongs to Him in order for someone else or something else to have it and to be able to experience a blessing from it. God gave. What did God give? He gave His Son. He gave His only Son. He gave His precious Son. When He was talking about His Son in the Gospels, He would say, this is My beloved Son. This is, the, this is the Son whom I love specially and eternally. 
Listen, when it says that God gave His only Son, He's not giving the world somebody that He didn't know very well or had only known for a while. The Son is His infinite and eternal Son whom He had been in fellowship with intimately from eternity past. He was giving up His precious Son. He gave His Son. The second thing that He did is in the negative in verse 17. And it says, it says, He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. So implied in that is that He did send His Son into the world for a purpose. And what is the purpose for which God sent His Son? Yes, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The word save, to deliver. It it implies that the world needs saving. It implies that the world needs rescuing. It implies that the world is in a condition, if something does not happen, it will be condemned. It will be lost. It will perish. And so what did God do? God sent His Son so that the world, that is, people like me and you could be delivered from our sin. From the pollution of our sin, how it makes us dirty, how it, how it makes us filthy, how it, how it causes our consciences to feel terrible, how it causes us to have a sense of guilt and pain because of the things that we think, the things that we say, and the things that we do. He came us to deliver us from the pollution of sin, to deliver us from the power of sin. I mean, there is a sense in which, in which when we live up on our own, apart from God's, God's work, you know what? We can't do anything but sin. We can't live in a way that, that is something other than sinful because we have no power over sin. It is like you and I are, are chained and shackled to sin and we can't do anything but that. And God sent His Son and gave His Son so that we could be delivered from that. And He also came to deliver us from the penalty of sin. When you think about Christmas, and you think about this baby being born in this manger, you need to think about the reality of hell, the reality of condemnation, because God sent His beloved Son to save the world from being condemned forever. Because of mine and your sin, because of the world's sin, we are all condemned to eternal punishment because we have sinned against this beautiful and glorious God. And He has sent His Son to deliver us from the power and the pollution and the penalty of sin. And in order to deliver us over to the purity of Christ, over to the power of Christ, over to the promise of life with Jesus Christ. Because you see, the baby who was born in the manger goes on to live a sinless, beautiful, glorious perfect, righteous life. The life that you and I are supposed to live. And then He goes to die a substitutionary death. The death that you and I are supposed to die because of our sin. The Son, the Beloved Son, takes that upon Himself and carries the weight of the wrath of God against sin for you and I. And then He is risen from the dead after He dies to defeat all the powers of sin and hell and death on our behalf. God gave His Son that we might be saved. Let's ask the third question right now. Why? Why did God do that? Yes. 
Because He loves us. If you just look at the text, it says, For God so loved the world. I just want to draw your attention to a few things here. The first thing is this, this word, the world. The world in Scripture, in, in the New Testament, in the way that John uses it here, Jesus uses it, it's not just talking about some neutral planet. It's talking about a system and a people who live within that system who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who rebel against the glory and holiness and righteousness and beauty of God and march their own way, who live in their own they're, they're, they're captains of their own ship, and yet it says that God so loved that world, the world that was in rebellion against God. And, 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 and Jesus' point here is not to say that the world is so big that God was able to get around to every person in the world and that's how much He loves. No, what He's saying is that the world is so bad, so sinful, so depraved, and yet God loved the world. I want us to draw attention to the word so. That word is showing us how emphatic, how, how significant the love of God is. I want, to, I want you to know something, people. Friends, family, God is not neutral toward you. God does not look at you from heaven with like these professor glasses on, looking down at the world and just simply tallying good marks and bad marks. Righteous works and unrighteous works. No, God so loves you. He loves you so much that what He did is He gave His Son and He sent His Son. This word love, it means to pursue the highest good of the object of its love. And so what God did is He pursued your highest good. He pursued my highest good by sending His Son to live on our behalf, to die our death, and to be raised from the dead that we might have life in Him. God loves you. And that's what Christmas is all about. And so, and so let's ask the fourth question tonight. What should you do? According to the text, read it right now on your own silently. What should you do based on who God is, what God's done, and why He's done it? What should you do? You should believe in Him. Listen, you, you may have been a Christian. You might be in this room and you may have been a Christian for 45 years. You may have been walking with God so long that you could repeat John 3, 16 and 17 backwards, standing on your head, rubbing your belly. All right? You may know it very, very well. But tonight, I can assure you that God is calling you to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And what that means is, you must distrust everything else. You must, you must take whatever faith, whatever, 
whatever belief that you're holding in somebody else or something else, and you say, you know what? That's really not a great Savior. That's really not a great Deliverer. I need to take my heart and my ambition and my desires off of this thing, off of this job, off of this car, off of this relationship, off of this trip, off of this vacation, off of this dream. And I need to put it squarely upon whom God has given and God has sent, namely His Son, Jesus Christ. And there I will find eternal life. And I will be delivered from the pollution and the power and the penalty of my sin. I'll be transferred over to the purity and the power and the promise of life with Jesus Christ. Would you please just bow your heads with me tonight? I want you to ask one question tonight. As you meditate about what to do with this passage. Who or what am I going to be most tempted to trust in this week? Who Or what am I going to be most tempted to trust in this week? And right now, as the music begins to play and we get to worship God and be in awe of God, could we say individually that I'm going to repent of being in awe of signs? I'm going to repent of being down on my knees, bowing before signs. And then I'm going to look to these blessings, these these meals and these family get-togethers and the time off and the trips and the gifts. And instead of just sinking my eyes on the gift or on the food or on the relationships... I'm going to look beyond those things so that I can be in awe of the God who has given them. I can be in awe of the God who has supplied them. But mostly, I will be in awe of the One who sent and gave His beloved Son that I might have eternal life with Him. Will you do that right now? Would you identify your temptations and give your heart and your life to God who has so loved you through His Son, Jesus Christ.